Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. All right, all right, everyone. Thank you. Welcome to the Two Tongues Podcast. Today we've got another solo episode. This time, the solo episode is coming from Chris again. Um, today was was meant to be a, a Kyle solo show, um, and we all we all look forward to those so much. So I'm just putting a little shame on uh, Mr. Kyle, who I'm sure will be listening to this tomorrow. Um, we missed it, buddy. We missed your solo episode, and we're looking forward to one uh, shortly. So uh, step up your game, buddy. Let's do it. All right. All right, guys. So I did have a um, another segment prepared in my in my solo series. You know, we're just talking about religion, and we've been through we've been through a lot. I mean, we we started talking about my interest in religion um, going way back to childhood. The things that I found interesting as I grew up and got more interested in uh, in the topic, and then we talked about a bunch of stuff, man. We talked about um, examining, you know, our understanding of reality, trying to figure out whether there's room in there for, um, you know, for the types of uh, kind of creative thinking that are needed to, you know, to 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 have some of the religious ideas that that we see in the world. I mean, they're unusual things. And then uh, we talked about uh, physics also, and we talked about how some of those unsolved problems of physics and how all the kind of cutting edge quantum physics and uh, string theory and all these sorts of things, how they play into this idea of consciousness as somehow responsible for the creation of the universe. And, uh, you know, I keep going back to that. Like if, you know, if consciousness plays a role in that, um, you know, do we have an opportunity to understand God is consciousness. And I, I think we do. I think, I think physics is saying that. I think the mystic experience is saying that unequivocally. Um, and then, and then studying a religion, if you, if you really do that historically and you're honest, you'll see that, that religion is saying the same thing. Um, we will obviously, uh, with conservative people disagree on a lot of that stuff, you know, and I'm not, when I say conservative people, I'm not limiting that to, to Christians, but you know, any conservative, conservative religious opinion is going to be, uh, you know, unwilling to kind of be flexible in the way that I'm, that I'm being in defining these things, defining what God, what God is and all, all these sorts of things that we've been playing around with in the last few solo episodes. Um, one of the things I said in a prior, uh, solo episode was, um, I brought up a guy named Wilhelm Schmidt. He's this uh, early anthropologist, but he was a Catholic priest, and because he was a religious person, the scientific community didn't take him seriously, so that's why you've never heard of him. But he said all kinds of interesting things, and uh, 
and I told you guys in that context when I was talking about him that what I was doing at the time was I was studying the uh, history. I was studying the most ancient records we have of religion because what I wanted to try to get to was like the earliest ideas about God or the, you know, the primordial religion. Like if I could find out what people believed about God in the very beginning, that I can maybe erase all of the human invented stuff, all of the stories and stuff that we, that we attached to the idea of God over the, over the last, you know, 100,000 years or something. I could just sort of whittle away all of that and, and be left with a core of truth about kind of what that original idea of God was and maybe how, how it's supposed to be understood, something like that. And, um, and that didn't go and it didn't go the way I thought it would go. And it, it mostly because, you know, history doesn't go back to the beginning. It, it, it's a far cry from the beginning. Uh, but we do have evidence. And I mentioned this in that episode, we do have evidence of religious ideas, um, going back a long, long way. Obviously, writing, you know, writing that that doesn't go back too far, you know, a couple thousand years BC, and we don't we don't have writing anymore. Uh, but we do have a lot of pictures, um, and I brought up these cave paintings, um, and you know, maybe you guys have seen these before, uh, but if you haven't, um, you definitely should Google some of these images, and I'll I'll talk about these in some detail here. Um, but what you find in these cave paintings, and some of these go back you know, 30, 40,000 years. And we don't, we don't really know actually how far back they go, but, uh, but, but many of them go back a long, long way. And so, uh, what you find interesting is that they're, they're basically pictures of animals. I mean, almost exclusively what you see in these cave paintings are pictures of animals. And sometimes you'll see, um, hunters that are, that are hunting animals. Um, there are though in these images, um, rare anomalies. There, there are some images that pop up when you see them. You're like, what is that? And it's weird because, because if you look at some of these cave paintings, you know, these go back a long way. And, and, you know, to some degree, we are talking about cavemen here. <laughs> we are talking about people that lived or at least spent a lot of time inside these caves. Um, but th that doesn't mean that we're talking about simple, you know, people. We're talking about ordinary people, just like you and I, complex, sophisticated people. They just lived a long, long time ago. And a lot of the animals that they painted are really lifelike. You know, they're like stylistically pretty correct. Um, but then there's other ones that, that are, that are not, uh, these pictures seem to be, um, hybrid, hybrid images, like images of a part human, part animal creature. And there's not a lot of them. Um, and they're really interesting. If you look at them, uh, look them up, you'll see what I'm talking about. But these hybrid human animal figures, there's a name for these people or these images. It, it, the name is Therianthropes. Um, so good luck spelling that. Therianthropes, if you want to Google that. Um, in Greek, Therion means means animal or wild animal and anthropos means human being. So, so what a therianthrope is, is a part animal, part human creature. And, you know, you guys may remember seeing that in all sorts of different ways, historically, you know, part, part human, part, part, uh, animal creatures. But what's strange is that these are, 
the very earliest images that we have evidence of that seem to indicate that might be a belief in something supernatural. And what I mean is hybrid creatures don't exist. So, when, you know, you look around the world, you're going to see animals, you're going to see humans. You're not going to see therianthropes. But these, these ancient people living really close to nature, you know, these cave people, they lived in nature, they hunted in nature, they were in nature all the time. They, you know, they, they knew how to, how to read animal tracks, you know, animal, animal scat, signs of, you know, antelopes rubbing their antlers on the trees or bears, you know, they, they, they looked for all of those things. They were aware of nature in a way that most modern people aren't. They know that therianthropes don't exist. Um, however, they're drawing them on these caves along with all of these animals. And so the question is, what in the heck is, are these therianthrope images? What are they? What are they supposed to mean? And nobody really knows. Um, there really isn't an answer. So, you know, just cut to the chase. I can't really tell you for sure. But I want to take you through a little bit of a journey um, talking through some of these these cave paintings. And uh, maybe you can Google some of these images as we're talking about them and see what I what I mean. Um, but I was first introduced to these cave images, these ancient cave paintings from um, from France and Spain. So there were, you know, like in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were caves that were discovered. And they were discovered because of, there were entrances to the caves that were discovered. These weren't their original interest, entrances. Um, so I don't exactly know, you know, were they, were they dynamiting these these mountainsides, you know, did somebody just happen to find a fissure in the crack? I don't, I don't know the history there, but what they did find was, um, uh, entrances to these tunnels inside, uh, these mountains. And these are again in Spain and in France largely, but there's some in, in Portugal. Um, there's, uh, you know, very ancient cave paintings, um, or rock paintings, that you can see in Australia and in Africa and in and North and South America. And some of them go back a really long way. Uh, some of them in Africa and Australia go back, you know, 100,000 years, like way older than the ones that we're going to be talking about today. The reason I'm bringing these up is because, uh, well, they're really famous and they've been studied a lot and you can see a lot of images with a quick Google. You can, you can see what I'm talking about. Um, but the ones in, in France... Um, there's a cave called Chauvet. Um, there's another called Lascaux and uh, Le Trois Frères, uh, the three brothers. Um, in Spain, there's one called Altamira. And uh, these caves, um, I'll just give you like the the history, the, a little bit of the history when they discovered them because because it's interesting. I mean, they, they found these, these entrances to these caves that they didn't know were there. They start exploring the caves, and it's like, you know, uh, really difficult going. You know, some places they're crawling, some places they're squeezing through small cracks. It's, it's obviously very, very dark in there. And we're talking about dozens of yards into the mountain, way, way, way away from the entrance to the cave where the light is, and it's pitch black. And these uh, explorers, they just keep going to see how far back it goes. Eventually, they, they, the uh, path opens up to a bigger room. And when they start flashing their flashlights around and looking at, you know, how big this room is, what they notice is with all the shadows and the lights flickering that they can see there's something on the walls. 
and not and not just like eye level, but all over the walls, high on the walls, low on the walls, um, you know, in cracks and crevices. There's definitely something going on. So long story short, when they finally get uh, get in there and see what's going on, what they notice is amazing murals of painted lions and and antelope and bison. Um, some of the animals that are pictured there are extinct, like like cave bears and you know animals that haven't existed in Europe for tens of thousands of years, and they're showing up hand-drawn by human beings in these caves. Um, a couple things that are really interesting to, to note is that there were um, uh, smoke, like evidence of smoke, obviously, in the caves, so you can imagine that when, when people got back there, they were drawing by by firelight, you know, there's no there's no sunlight getting back there. So maybe they've lit a fire, maybe they're holding a torch, but the point is, it's a very long and dangerous walk through this, you know, crazy cave system um, to get to this spot where clearly there was something going on. Um, what they found as they were doing research is that the pictures of animals, they're like, they're like drawn over top of each other. So there's like, not just one antelope, but there's like six and they're all... They're all drawn kind of over top of each other. You know, it's not exactly over top, a little bit off off center. So what you end up with is like the image what almost looks like an antelope moving. You know, it's almost like you're flipping a flip book and you're seeing the movement of the, of the animal. And um, they imagine that if you were sitting there with like a torch light and the lights are flickering, that that might actually have been what it looked like. If you were walking through this cave system with a torch that was just flickering and the lights are not, not you know, a constant light like a flashlight, but just on and off, brighter and lighter, that that these overlapping images would have actually looked like they were moving. And and that's that's interesting all by itself. But what's also interesting is the, the idea that they think, the scientists that have studied it think that it was ritual, that the caves were used for ritual purposes so that people were taking this journey down through this dark dangerous cave they're emerging into this secret place in the middle of the earth you know deep in this mountain where people have gone for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and drawn these animals all over the caves um and so there might have been some sort of ritual maybe a maybe a psychedelic type of ritual some sort of coming of age thing um and they see evidence of that you know they see you know footprints and and, and handprints of people of all different sizes and ages so you might even you might even imagine parents taking their taking their young kids in, into this cave to have a, a spiritual experience of some kind so all of this is going on in these caves um and and they explain this as like maybe being some kind of hunting magic. And that's that's the word that they use, which, you know, I don't know if I go all the way with it, but you can imagine if I was living, you know, hand to mouth and I if I didn't kill, you know, uh, a bison or something, I can imagine how, how dangerous and scary that is to know that your family's going to starve unless you go off into the wilderness and take down a 
a, a giant beast that could just squash you like a bug, you know, a, a bison that's 20 times your size, and you've got to kill that thing, or your family and your village starves. You know, imagine the anxiety you would have. So, so these people, these people, uh, according to some of these researchers, they're they're painting these animals in the cave that are largely animals that they would hunt. And them going back and retracing these images with, with like I said, these, these images that are drawn over top of one another, that if you went and you were retracing those images or you were adding new images to them, that somehow you're participating in what they call hunting magic. It's something that's designed to, um, you know, to... To, to have the, <clears throat> the animals appear to them that they're going to be hunting when they're in the, when they're in the wild it's like a supernatural way of them to try to to try to uh, ensure that their hunt is going to be successful that somehow they're they're toying with the idea of these of, of these supernatural powers that they're able to that they're able to somehow capitalize on by by making their way into the middle of the mountain and deep into the earth and drawing these pictures in the cave. Now, obviously, we can't go back and ask a caveman if that's what was going on. Um, so I, I tell you that because we really don't know that that's the truth. But it's a good hypothesis, you might say. Um, I don't know if I believe it necessarily, but it's 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 likely. It's it's a possibility. What it doesn't explain, you know, what hunting magic doesn't explain, are these therianthropes that you see in the cave paintings. And I want to show you a couple of these. Um, there's a cave called uh, Lascaux in France. I told you about that. And there is a um, an image there. It's called the Birdman. Birdman. So if you guys just Google uh, Birdman Lascaux, it's L-A-S-C-A-U-X. If you Google that, what you will find is a very weird picture. There's a bison in the picture. You could very clearly see there's a bison in the picture. There's no doubt about it, what that is, on, on the right. Now, laying, seemingly laying to the left of this bison is a human form. And it looks kind of like a stick figure. You know, a long body, um, sort of stick, stick legs and arms coming out, but you can clearly see not an animal shape, it's a human shape. There's two or three things about the picture that are very fucking weird and you will notice right away thing number one the birdman seems to have a smudge right around where his penis would be it kind of looks like it's it kind of looks like an erect penis so you've got a birdman laying in front of a bison bison seems to be very much alive it seems to be in motion kind of running around with its horns facing the guy the the birdman he's laying there with a boner apparently and and his face is not a human face. Uh, obviously, this guy's the Birdman, so you can imagine his face is sort of—it sort of has a beak. Clearly, not a human face. What you're looking at is a human being. You can see all the fingers. You can see the feet, the arms, the legs, the body, the head, just like a human being. Apart from the bird face and the boner, um, you can clearly see this is a human figure. But it's one of the only human figures that you see in these cave paintings. There are almost none. The other thing you notice is that just below the Birdman is a, a, a very clear bird figure. It looks like a duck. And the duck seems to be standing on a, 
on a stick or a pole. And when you ask when you when you ask the people who've studied these images, what they say is that the Birdman is is a sorcerer. He's a shaman. Um, and that 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 duck that you see, that bird that's kind of laying underneath him, that seems to be stuck on a pole. That maybe that's some kind of a of a magic wand, some kind of a you know an implement that the shaman used for the for the ritual. Maybe something to do with the hunting magic. Maybe that's why the birdman is here next to this ferocious bison that that you know these people would have been hunting hunting and eating. But there's absolutely no explanation for the one human figure and all of these animals, and there's certainly no explanation for why the human figure looks the way it does and is not, again, part human, part bird, seemingly. Um, when when images of human beings don't exist in these cave paintings, this is the only one. Another thing that's weird about it is that it's very simple, very simplistic. You look at some of these images, even the bison that's next to it, it's way more artistically beautiful. You know, the face, the horns, the body, the legs, the haunches, the tail, the hair. You can see all these lifelike, you know, details. But on the human being, you've got this weird stick figure boner birdman creature. Okay. So that's weird. Um, but it, it gets it gets weirder. Uh, there's a another cave in France, very similar story. Um, uh, La Trois Frères. This is the Three Brothers Cave. So if you type in L-E-S, second word T-R-O-I-S, three in French, and brothers, F-R-E-R-E-S. If you type that in, and then the word sorcerer. What's going to come up for you? Are the pictures in Lascaux Cave. And one in particular that is the, some of the strangest images you've ever seen. Um, go ahead and look it up. What, what you're going to see here is what looks to me to be maybe a deer, maybe an antelope of some kind. It's almost sort of up on its hind legs, like it's like it's half leaping. You can see really large horns coming off of its head. You can see eyes that look like big owl eyes, and they're looking right at you. Another thing you can see is the tail of the deer. It looks very much like a white-tailed deer. If you're from the Northeast, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and you can also see the details in the image of what almost look like the muscles underneath the skin. Like if you were a hunter and you and you'd skinned a deer, you know what that looks like. This is this seems to be what they've put here on this deer, this leaping deer creature. But here's the weird part. <clears throat> you know, I already mentioned it's not clearly not a deer because you have owl eyes. The uh, lower legs, the, the legs that it's standing up on, <clears throat> are not hooved feet. They're not deer's legs. They're human legs. Interestingly, you also have something hanging out underneath the tail, uh, hanging out underneath the legs and tail, which also looks to be a penis, if, if I had to guess. And then the arms, the arms sort of look like maybe they're human, maybe they're not, but they're definitely not hooved, they're definitely not deer arms. And then what it does is it gives this weird, weird feeling to the, to the creature where is, you don't know, is it, is it really a, like a deer sort of leaping? Or is it, or is it an animal changing into a man and, and going from all fours up onto two feet. You know, you can imagine like a like a werewolf movie where the transformation happens. That's kind of what it seems to be that I'm looking at in this image of the sorcerer. 
Point is, what we've got here is another Therianthrope. Just like the Birdman of Lascaux, we have we have a creature that's made partly of uh, animals and partly of partly of a human being, all kind of hodgepodge together. Very very weird. And I would encourage you to go look at some of the other images, you know, the, the panel of lions from Chauvet, for instance, um, just beautiful, beautiful stuff, but no explanation whatsoever for these images, the Birdman of Lascaux, the sorcerer of the Three Brothers Cave. Um, again, very rare to see these types of images. All the rest of them are very naturalistic um, animals and hunting scenes. So, you know, people have said that these therianthropes were probably representing a shaman, some kind of religious person in the community that somehow bridged the gap between the, the world of nature and the world of humans. That's, that's somebody that could help them with their hunting, somebody that could maybe use some sort of supernatural force from nature that they could harness it and use it. Maybe they could get information or knowledge from, from nature. These are the kind of things that they're proposing might be the case. And it's not like they're guessing completely, you know, pulling something out of their hat. You know, it's not like that, although it may seem that way. Um, you know, one of the things they do, obviously, you know, the scientists is that they will look at historical comparisons. So what do these, what do these cave paintings look like compared to other, you know, paintings or art that are that ancient? Um, what, what are like primitive... Um, primitive people that live a traditional lifestyle today, you know, like in, you know, in, in rural places in, uh, in South, Amer South America or Africa or Australia, like the tribal people that still live the way they lived, you know, historically, um, you know, what, what, what do they have, have to say about it? How do they make sense of it? Do they make art like that still? Um, if so, you know, how do they understand it? And they try to use those sorts of examples to put some context to these types of images. Again, I can't, can't go back in time and ask the caveman, uh, you know, to explain this. So this is the best we can do. Um, so I want to show you one other thing. While we're talking about these cave paintings and these, these half-animal, half-human creatures, um, I mean, clearly, to make something like this, being, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, a caveman, living very close to nature and understanding that these sorts of creatures don't exist, you are using your imagination and you are using um, maybe the unconscious to, to come up with this sort of a symbolic image that means something. We don't know what it means because, again, I can't ask a caveman, but it does seem to have some supernatural characteristics. It's not a natural image. It's something else. And if you have a human being describing something supernatural, you can't exactly do that without admitting that these human beings, even going way back 30, 40,000 years ago, had very clear religious ideas. They believed in a supernatural realm. They believed um, in something that maybe bridges the gap between man and nature. And they were depicting this um, in the caves. Now, whether this was a god, whether it was a shaman, whether it was something they worshipped, we have no idea. We have no idea. But there's definitely an idea surrounding, you know, these hunter-gatherer type people, where if you try to imagine what it must have been like for them to live and the way they lived, again, living hand-to-mouth, 
being uh, exposed to, to nature, having to protect themselves uh, all the time from the elements, from the wild animals, um, from, from starvation, you know, that these people would have been, um, life would have had a spiritual uh, dynamic that modern people cannot really understand. And so I, the best thing I can do here is, is, is maybe ask you to imagine that you have children and a family and that you don't have a city or a town or, or, or an extended family that can support you or that can help you. And you have to feed your, your wife and your kids, let's say. Um, and, uh, and you go out and you put your life on the line. You take risks by going out into nature, um, going out into the elements for days, you know, living, um, you know, in the, maybe in a, by yourself or in these small hunting parties away from everything. Um, not sure if you'll, if you'll come back, um, succeeding after a, a grueling, you know, week long hunt, succeeding and taking down, uh, some large game and then, and then coming up to that, that body that, 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 that you've, that you've killed that life that you've taken being confronted with death like that. And then opening up that, that, that creature's body and seeing kind of what's, what's behind the, the, uh, the veil there a little bit, seeing things you don't usually see how these creatures are put together. Um, maybe seeing how they resemble even yourself, their, their rib cage, their, you know, their, uh, skull, the things that you, that you also see in human beings making these connections and then taking this meat home and having not eaten a good meal in weeks or months coming, coming, coming home and, and seeing the smiles on the faces of your family and your children and cooking and eating that meat and being starving and you know maybe a little bit of what I mean, but how good that food tastes when you're starving, and it's the first piece of meat you've had in ages. Um, you know, when that when that fat just melts in your mouth, and you and you just smile. You know, um, the energy that you would feel from that. You know, if you haven't eaten in a long time, or you haven't eaten anything with any nutrients in it. Like I I mentioned in a prior episode, uh, Kyle and I were talking in the good old days about period of time where I juiced uh, fruit and vegetable juice for all my meals <clears throat> you know I was living you know on a standard American diet and I wasn't used to that kind of nu- uh, nutrition you know and I drink this kale juice or something and I feel like a freaking superman for a couple of days it's like uh, electrifies you you can feel it you can feel it somehow so I'm just imagining this this you know campfire with these starving people or dirty starving people sitting around it how grateful they are to this animal that's given its life for them, um, how much enjoyment they would be getting from, from, from feasting on it, and uh, making this connection between the fact that this animal sacrificed its life so that I can continue my life, and having this um, appreciation for the life, death, and rebirth cycle, and, and understanding that life and death are connected in this way that that would have been something that would have bordered on, not not bordered on, it would have absolutely been spiritual. It would have been absolutely been a religious experience. The hunt and eating every single day of your life would, would be a religious experience to those people. So they, so again, they, they lived in a way that we, it's hard for us to imagine. Um, so I want to show you another image now that we've kind of explained some of that is um, there's a place not far from these caves that we're talking about uh, in, in France and Spain, 
um, there's a, in fact, a, a part of Spain called Basque Country. Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of the Basques, but they're a, a you know, they're a, um, an ethnic group that lives in the mountains in Spain. Um, and they're, because they're in the mountains, they're, they're sort of isolated from the rest of Spain. And this is, this is true, you know, for any kind of, uh, mountainous region that you go to in the world, people who live there in these isolated mountainous areas, they have less interaction with the outside world because it's harder to get there. It's harder to trade with those people. Um, but they, they do that for a reason. They, they live there because it offers them protection. You know, it, it's, it's hard to get there. So it's hard for your enemies to get there. You know, it's got a lot of high places. So you there's benefits to that. You can see how the animals are moving. You can, you know, where you have to go to get, to get food. So there are reasons why you might live in these isolated mountainous areas. And to this day, these, these people, these Basque people, they still live there today. And the reason I bring them up is because they're one of very few groups in Europe that aren't related to all of the other groups in Europe. So I'm kind of like handpicking these Basque people to talk about because they're a, a very ancient culture that goes back uh, in, in, well into prehistory. And they haven't been like um, interfered with uh, by the rest of um, the cultures that have kind of went through Spain over the years. And that, that's true even with like the, the Romans, you know, going way back, that they were able to keep themselves isolated from influence from the outside. Um, you may remember when I was talking um, in an earlier solo episode about religion, I, I mentioned uh, these proto-Indo-European uh, people that came down from the Russian steppes or Central Europe somewhere, that they took over basically all of Europe, and they brought their language and their culture and their religion with them. And that swept through Europe and basically took over all of Europe and uh, and big parts of the Middle East. The proto-Indo-European people kind of took over that whole area, and so we see the, the elements of their culture, their religion, and their language, you know, as far away as Ireland and as distant as, you know, India, that whole area. Um, but in Basque country in Spain, you don't see that because they were so isolated. So this is why I think the Basques are a good, are a good example. Their language, even today is completely unrelated to the Romance languages in Europe. It's also unrelated to the Proto-Indo-European language that goes way back to prehistory. So this is a group of people that are unique. Um, by the way, they would be the first to tell you that. They've been fighting for, uh, for freedom from Spain for a long time. They don't want to be a part of Spain. They don't consider themselves Spanish. They consider themselves Basque. They've got their own language, their own culture, their own history, and their own religion. All right, so this brings me to what I want to show you next. Um, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but I'm going to do my best. Um, in the Basque country, they have a ritual. They have a historically deep, deep historical ritual that involves a character called the Zenzigori. Z-E-Z-E-N-G-O-R-R-I. I'll give you a second. Look it up. Zinzagori will remind you when you see it. It'll remind you of uh, the creature from the from the M Night Shyamalan movie, The Village. So, if any of you have seen The Village, you know the Zinzagori is going to be what you what you see. Um, I can't I can't mention M Night Shyamalan without saying I've always loved M Night Shyamalan. People give uh, all of his movies after like the Sixth Sense. 
a really bad rap. Um, but The Village was tremendous. It was an awesome movie. And Lady in the Water, by the way, for those people who brush that off, is awesome. And if, 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 you, if you were one of those people that brushed that movie off back in, you know, 2006 when it came out or whatever it was, go back and rewatch that thing. All right, so back to The Village. If you guys remember that movie, um, you know, these people were living in this... Um, like 1800s type of rural community in the woods. They were very isolated there, and uh, they had to protect themselves from the dangers that lurked outside in the woods. Um, and one of these dangers is a super, these supernatural creatures that are attracted to the color red. So if anybody, you know, had w red clothes on or a red flower bloomed out of the ground, they'd have to be worried about it. Otherwise, these these evil creatures from the forest would come in and, and do harm. And in the movie, you see them. And there are these cloaked uh, creatures with these crazy long-fingered clawed hands, um, crazy-looking faces, you know, super superhuman type of faces, and these kind of spikes or quills that came out of their back. So just erase those quills, and what you're looking at is the Zinzangori. <clears throat> this is a creature, and again, in the in the Basque um, uh, like carnival, like when they're when they're doing these. Um, performances that kind of date they go back to these early you know religious rituals um you can basically imagine like a shaman type person wearing a robe that's made of um leather like like cow or bull leather and they're holding these things in their hands that make it look like they have these crazy clawed long-fingered hands and as a head they have the head of a bull it's a skull of a bull with the horns and they're wearing it like a like a helmet and so the image that you see here is this crazy half-human, half-bull creature um, that's dancing around, uh, and it's the center of this ritual, the Sinzengori. So these are all images. The Birdman of Lascaux, the uh, Sorcerer of the Three Brothers Cave, and the Sinzengori of the Basque country in Spain. These, these ideas that go way back, so deep into history that we kind of can't really hope to uncover the origin where it came from but we see it over and over and over and over again so i just want to point out here that the idea that human beings have any kind of supernatural thoughts they seem to really originate the earliest place that we see it are with these therianthropes these these creatures that are depicted as part human and part animal and so I think that's where we want to start this conversation. What does that mean? What, what does it mean to be uh, part human and part, part animal? So what I think this means and, and where I think this goes in the religious conversation is that a, a therianthrope is, is the union of man and nature. So what, what Carl Jung might say, the union of consciousness and unconsciousness or the conscious and the unconscious man and nature. Jordan Peterson might say the union of order and chaos. Um, you know, the great, the great religious scholar uh, Merce Eliade might say the sacred and the profane. That's a, a, a name of one of his books. But in any case, this, these therianthropes, these half-animal, half-human beings are, are something that represents the union of man and nature. That it reminds you that maybe there's something uh, there's something that ties together human beings and and the, and the rest of of the world and nature that maybe maybe there's some there's something like one thing and we're, we have to we have to remember that because as human beings we 
we have this tendency of distancing ourselves from nature. You know, we, we build, we chop down the trees, we push back the wild, we build our, our cities, we, we wall them up, keep the nature out. We, we had these protected realms of order that we, that we keep and we put ourselves in and we pretend like we're not, we're not a part of it. But all of these images of these animal human creatures, the Zinzengori and the sorcerer and the birdman, and understanding what it must have been like for most of human history to live hand to mouth and to need death to sustain life and to, and to understand those mysteries as being necessary just for you to continue to exist, that, that, that these are reminders to always remember that there's a union of man and nature, that we're not different, we're the same thing. We cannot forget that. So in our rituals, in, our, in these cave paintings, where we're sending our 12-year-old boys for their rite of passage you know, ceremonies, that they're, they're confronted with these half-animal, half-human creatures. Why? Because we have to remember that as a human being, we are nature just like the animals. We are nature. So there's a union there that, that is part of the earliest religious ideas that we have to remember that we're not different from nature even though we, we sort of pretend to be. Alright, so where this takes me here is basically leaving the realm of like super prehistory. We're not talking about cave paintings anymore um, or, or you know the Zinzengori, but instead... What comes to your mind when I just say, <clears throat> like animal-human hybrids, what comes to your mind when I say that? You know, there's, there's all sorts of things that come to my mind. Like the first thing, you know, coming from a, uh, coming from a Judeo-Christian background, and you, you guys may not, <clears throat> may not be thinking in this, in this thread, at least not, not right away. I mean, what comes to people's minds are, you know, minotaurs and sphinxes and things like that. But what about angels? You know, what about a human being with giant wings? Isn't that, isn't that a part human, part animal creature, an angel? You bet your ass it is. Uh, how is that different? How is that different? Because people will, will want to distance themselves. You know, Christians and Jews, let's say, or Muslims, they may want to distance themselves from the idea of throwing in the image of an angel with the image of the sphinx or something. Um, but I have a really hard time uh, making a distinction. All right, so I'm going to have you guys do this while we're talking about angels, and this is going to be difficult because I'm going to have you. I'm going to have you Google the, Google the word Nike, just like the shoes Nike. Um, but I'm going to have you. I'm going to have you add the word Greek right next to it. The reason is because if you just type in Nike, you're going to get a bunch of shoes. But if you type in Nike Greek, you're going to get the goddess. You're going to get the ancient Greek goddess who the shoe manufacturer took their name from. Go ahead and do that. Take a look at that picture. Tell me what you see. You see a beautiful woman, a goddess, with these you know, long flowing robes in, in traditional Greek fashion. And right from her shoulder blades, you've got these giant angel's wings coming out from her back. Now, if you take a, you know, like let's say you take a seven-year-old out of, out, of, uh, uh, <laughs> out of their church class and you sit them down in front of a PowerPoint presentation and you show them a picture of Nike and you ask them, what, what is that? They're going to tell you unequivocally that it's an angel. And if you're looking at the picture of Nike, you'll see and you will agree that's what you're looking at. 
Um, another thing you might look at is Hermes, uh, the Greek god Hermes. If you just took a picture or if you just Google a picture of Hermes, what you'll notice is that um, Hermes has wings also, uh, wings affixed to his head or to his feet or to both. Uh, maybe this is not like an obvious example of a human animal hybrid, but while we're talking about it, I don't think you can I don't think you can avoid looking at Hermes and saying the same thing. Hermes is a therianthrope, just like Nike, just like all the angels from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, if you type in uh, Sphinx and you take a take a look at the um, at the various sphinxes, you'll see that you know you're looking at the body of a of a um, a lion and the head of a human. In some of those images, you'll also see wings. Um, so you might have the body of a lion, the head of a human, and wings on those on those sphinxes. Um, the senators and minotaurs from Greek religion we already talked about. You know the uh, part uh, part bull, part human um, figures. Um, if you are a fan of uh, Ancient Aliens from the History Channel, you've probably heard the word uh, Anunnaki before. Um, that goes back to you know ancient Babylon and Sumeria. If you look at the uh, images of uh, the Anunnaki and some of the sphinxes from ancient Babylon and Sumeria, you're looking at the same thing. You're looking at creatures that have human heads or bird heads, but human bodies and wings. Um, again, human-animal hybrids going back to classical religions like the ancient Greeks, the ancient Sumerians and Babylonians. Um, and then, and then I, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't, if I didn't talk about ancient Egypt because ancient Egypt is the absolute, um, they're, they're the, they're the champions of the Therianthrope race. I mean, if you look at their gods, you know, type in Anubis, let's say, the god of the underworld, and you can see a jackal-headed god. Um, if you look at uh, Ra, you know, uh, if you look at um, Sekhmet or Horus, you know, Horus is a um, a god that uh, pops up uh, in Jordan Peterson's uh, lectures quite a bit, but Horus is a falcon-headed god. Human body, falcon head. Um, Sekhmet, S-E-K-M-E-T, she is a uh, or excuse me, S E K H M E T. She is a, a feline or a a, a cat headed goddess. Um, they're all over the place. So, I guess what I want to bring, what I want to bring to your attention, is that when we go back into prehistory, if we go way back to ancient times, what we see are the earliest ideas of God coming from this relationship of humans and animals or humans and nature and seeing all of these symbols, all these abstract symbols that are supposed to remind human beings that they are not different from nature, that they are nature. That's the human-animal combination. Um, now, we fast forward to like the legitimate age of religion where we have classical religions that dominate the world, like ancient Greece and the Greco-Roman religion and the Sumerian Babylonian religion, that go back to the beginning of like civilization. We have we have writing, we have evidence of this. We have so many pictures and temples and uh, statues of all of these creatures, and we can see sort of a continuum from the Birdman of Lascaux forty thousand years ago, thirty thousand years ago, to the, the god. Anubis in ancient Egypt, or the god Ni goddess Nike in in, uh, in the Greek religion. So again, just kind of bear in mind this is a continuum; it goes all the way through. Now, what what I want to do now 
is I wanted I wanted to sort of take a little bit of a different angle on this. You know, let's examine how people are depicting gods. I mean, once <clears throat> once people are are um, once once people have I don't know abstracted might be the word. Once people have abstracted the idea of God and imagine them as something that's supernatural and that outside of themselves, or maybe even outside of nature. Um, what we, you know, what, what we end up with is all sorts of different ways that people imagine gods or imagined, you know, the supernatural world. Um, some of the earliest evidence we have of this is related to something as a word that they use. It's called animism. And, and we talked about this with Carl Jung when we talked about the archetype of the anima, which we'll talk, you know, we should talk about more and we will. Um, but the idea of animism is basically spirit worship. That's what it means. It's like a worldview where you see everything as imbued with spirit. Now, you might imagine like, you know, guys, I was a, I was an 80s and 90s kid, so I imagine like uh, the, the Disney movie Pocahontas, like the, the, way, that it, the way that they depict uh, Native American spirituality. Like, you know, the river uh, has a spirit and the sky has a spirit and the sun has a spirit and living creatures have spirits and, you know, that sort of thing. That this is the idea that animism was was some sort of a of a of a religion that evolved in a tribal setting that there's evidence of all over the world. Australia, North and South America, Africa, Europe, everywhere. Um and and also ancestor worship. This is something that and I again forgive me, I don't know if this is offensive the way I'm gonna put it. I I hope not. But if you've ever been to like a like a Chinese restaurant and you see um, usually up on the wall, there'll be a statue and there'll be incense burning, um, that those sorts of things exist even today and largely in Africa and in Asia where there are um, like household shrines, like, like what I'm describing that you might, might see in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an Asian restaurant um, that are designed to allow you to make uh, prayers and offerings to your ancestors. That people, going back to the very beginning of time, um, they had some sort of religion or, or spirituality or worship that had to do with their their deceased family members. Um, again, people still do that. Um, but, th- you know, we don't have to go too far to understand this. I mean, if you have, um, you know, let, let, you know, like... You're, like the person who's who started your um, founded your uh, tribe, let's say maybe that's your grandpa, your father, maybe it's your great grandpa. Maybe you split off from one tribe and you found it and you founded another tribe, and you're like the, you know, you're like the father of that of that tribe. It's it's easy to imagine that after a couple of generations, when nobody remembers you specifically anymore, you're looking at your great 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 grandkids, let's say, nobody knows who you are. That that if I was still worshiping and thanking my ancestors for what they did for for us, for for bringing us into in, you know into the world, for giving us this culture and teaching us the the things they how to hunt and how to well, whatever it is, all the things that that the people who came before me have have given me, that I have a reason to be appreciative of that. I have a reason to maybe maybe want to give offerings to the to the spirits of these of these dead dead people. To do that, I have to have an idea of a spirit first, obviously. So there's something else going on. Um, but you can imagine if we just take this example one step further, and we look about we look at people like like Genghis Khan. Um, you know, Genghis Khan is uh, you know he's still venerated in Mongolia today. Um, I don't know if I'd call him a god, but I think there are people that might uh, put it in that way. 
But even even us, you know, in the United States, you know, think about somebody like George Washington, you know, these cultural heroes that are that are so distant from us in time that, you know, all these stories build up around them. They become larger than life characters. You know, Mao Zedong in China is another. Um, But these give you an idea of how you can imagine, you know, these are people that we know were human beings. We know they were just like you and I. They weren't they weren't gods. They weren't spiritual, but they were great people. And because we have a culture that insists on recognizing them, um, again, you might call that worship, that uh, over time, eventually, what you end up with is, is legitimate worship. You get, you get these people viewed somehow as deities, somehow as gods. And then I have to point out that what we're talking about here, if we're talking about ancestor worship, if we're talking about worshiping ourselves as God— and I know I keep saying that this is a this is a theme that I keep bringing to the table that human beings that consciousness is indistinct from what we call God, and that examining these ideas, these religious ideas, it's it's funny to me where they sync up, especially when when people don't really think about it this way. You know, when we talk about ancestor worship, I can't help but imagine uh, human beings worshiping their ancestors as man worshiping man. Man recognizing itself as God or consciousness as God, and again, in a weird way, because you know, in this ancestor worship angle, it's it, it has to do with again being appreciative of uh, you know the fact that uh, our ancestors brought us into the world by having sex with each other and by teaching us how to get along. That we didn't have to reinvent the wheel uh, of culture, and so there are reasons to be appreciative and and, re- and to remember our ancestors. All right, so we talked about you know the Therianthropes a lot. We talked a little bit about worshiping, worshiping mankind as God with ancestor worship, um, but I want to talk about like these, how abstract religion continues to get, because if we go back to the beginning with these cave paintings, we can see a very close relationship between man and these supernatural images, because human beings are part of those images. They're half human, half nature images. Um, so. It's clear we had an understanding that we were much more, uh, much more closer, close, closer linked or identified with nature um, when we see these gods from ancient Egypt and uh, and Greece and Rome and all that. It's a little bit different, you know. It's it's like yeah, they're they're still hu- part human, part animal, but the gods are not seen as as part of you know you know human human beings directly. They're seen as outside of of human beings and this in this sort of hard to define supernatural way, but that continues to happen. Like this abstraction just continues to happen where people are thinking about gods in more and more abstract ways. Um, and even in classical religions, you've got gods that are identified with other parts of nature, not, not just animals. So you've got, you know, kind of like the animism we talked about with us, uh, you know, recognizing that the sun has a spirit and then this, that the, the river has a spirit We've got gods like Ra in ancient Greek in ancient uh, Egypt that's identified with the sun. You know, Ra or um, Aten or um, you know Amun that are identified with the sun. So other parts of nature. In in Rome, uh, Roman religion, that god was called Sol, which is where we get the word solar from. Um, then we've we've got gods that are identified with death, like like Anubis. Um, we have gods that are identified with uh, with fertility, you know, like like Diana or Isis. 
we've got gods that are identified with the moon, the Milky Way, um, you know, the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights, rivers, oceans, all these things. We've got gods that are that are depicted as as powerful forces of nature. Now, these gods, for the most part, they lose their connection to human beings. You don't you don't see them depicted in human form uh, um, in the same ways. They just get they get more increasingly more abstracted, so that they they're kind of more nature than they are human. Um, and then there's this last there's this last category. These primordial gods is what I'll call them. And a lot of these gods, they, they go way back to the very beginning of the, the, you know, uh, the cultures that, that in, ended up developing these pantheons of gods, like, like Greece and Rome and Egypt. Um, so they're part of those pantheons. But those pantheons developed over time also. So it's not like the Greek religion always had that same number of gods. And, you know, over time there were different gods and different names that they were, they were consolidated. They were, you know... Uh, warring parties kind of went into went into one group and took took them over and kind of uh, turned their either got rid of their gods entirely or turned their gods into lesser gods and there's all sorts of shaking up that happens with these pantheons over the years so don't don't think that they were developed and then they were static that's not what happened it's not like human beings said you know hey I I, I recognize that there's uh, that there's you know uh, something in human beings that drives us to, to go to war with each other so so there must be a God associated with war and there's a sun up there in the heavens so there must be a God associated with the sun and you know it's like I, I'm not going through a list of natural forces and giving names to all of these things and pretending that they're gods that's not exactly what happened it was a much more uh, much more grassroots from the ground up sort of a thing that developed and changed over time. And some of these really early gods that either merged with other gods or were done away with were gods that were considered responsible for creating the cosmos. So they didn't really have any other characteristics. They weren't they weren't really interesting in any other ways, except for the fact that they were responsible for creating the cosmos, or maybe they were responsible for creating the rest of the gods who did all the work of creating the universe. Ultimately, they're the, they're the, the spark of creation. They're the first thing. They're the, they're the primordial god. Um, and it's interesting because the, you'll see these gods in, 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 in Egypt. Uh, Ptah is one of them. In Greece, um, the god was just called Chaos. So if you read like, um, if you read uh, Hesiod and Herodotus, if you read some of those ancient Greek, um, uh, uh, either mythology or history, depending on how you how you understand it, um, y- you will see, um, you know, uh, that, that Hesiod talks about basically like the, like the Genesis story, how the universe was created according to the Greeks. And it begins with a god called Chaos or, or a goddess called Chaos. The goddess has no characteristics, no personality. She's just something that existed before anything else. She's the potential, the possibility for the universe to emerge, and she's the one who, um, she's the one who basically kicked off the process of creation. She's ultimately responsible for things being here instead of nothing being here. And you see that again in Egypt with Ptah, in Sumeria with the goddess uh, Tiamat, which uh, which Jordan Peterson did a great great job talking about in his biblical lectures. If you're interested, go back and listen to those. Um, uh, and this and this leads me to well, you know, there's there's another there's another uh, 
a version of this that comes, at least I've only heard of it, in Africa, uh, where some of these tribal religions in Africa, they have, they have a creator god. Um, and he's, he or she's often considered, you know, you know, obviously responsible for everything, the most powerful being, but not the only God or the only spirit. And the thing about that, that understanding that I'm talking about is that these, these cultures that believe in this creator God, um, they say that he created the universe and that, and that then he disappeared. Then he removed himself from, from, from contact with human beings. And so human beings don't worship him. They don't, they don't sacrifice to, to him or her because because they're gone. They don't, they, they're not here anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. So it's a really weird way of understanding that. I mean, those people are still worshiping other spirits and gods and everything. Uh, and they recognize that there's this creator, God, that started it all. But it's just not important. It's not a part of their religious rituals. Uh, and I think that's, that's interesting. Um, but this kind of all brings me to two other examples that I think, and there, there are others, but these two are really good that I want to talk about. And that is, um, that is religions that talk about a creator God, or this primordial God, that's not only responsible for creating the world, but whose, whose body became the universe. So it's not like we think of, you know, Old Testament God saying, let there be light and just poof the world into existence. No, no, no. These are gods whose bodies, for lack of a better word, were used to create the cosmos. And we have two great examples of this. Um, and they're from very different parts of the world. One of them comes from the Norse religion, the Viking religion um, from Scandinavia. And another one comes from, from ancient China. So I want to I read you a little bit here um, from the story... Um, uh, from the Nordic story. There's a uh, holy book called the Edda. Um, there's different versions of it. The one I'm going to read you is called the Poetic Edda. And it talks about their, a primordial god, the very first god in, uh, Viking, in this Vi- Viking religion, whose name was Ymir, Y-M-I-R. And here it goes. Out of Ymir's flesh was fashioned the earth, and the mountains were made of his bones. The sky from the frost-cold giant's skull, and the ocean out of his blood. So this is the story of Ymir, who was the original god, who, who created the world that human beings inhabit, who created the cosmos with his own body, that he, that he died and his body was used to create the earth, um, the mountains, uh, the frost, the oceans, all of that from his body. So listen to this. This is a story that comes from, that comes from China in ancient China. There's a God. And again, I hope I'm not mispronouncing this. I've only ever read it. Pangu, P-A-N-G-U. Um, Pangu is, is depicted as a hairy giant. And also, um, in the Nordic religion, Ymir is a giant. If you didn't catch that with the line that says the sky was made from the, from the, the giant skull. So, uh, in, in the Chinese version, the, the primordial God is also a giant, a hairy giant with horns on his head. And he began creating the world by separating yin from yang. Um, Jordan Peterson will tell you that's chaos from order. So in the beginning, the world was a state of sort of a union of, of all things. 
uh, Pangu separates yin from yang, uh, creates the earth and the sky. That took about 18,000 years. And once Pangu has done this, uh, the god Pangu dies. And from his breath became the wind, mist, and clouds. From his voice, thunder. From his left eye, the sun. From his right eye, the moon. From his head, the mountains. And the extremes of the world. His blood, rivers, his muscles, the fertile land, his facial hair, the stars, the Milky Way, and on and on and on it goes. So here you have two stories from very different parts of the world that are both saying that God not only created the universe, but that the universe is created from God, out of God, out of its substance, out of its body. So they imagine somehow God as a, as a being with a body. Now, obviously, we don't really, th- it's hard to imagine God as anything material. And I think this is allegorical, obviously. But, but what we're supposed to get from this is that the cosmos were, were not only, cre- they're, 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 they're the response, not only did God create the universe, but created the universe from itself. And I think that's important because what that is, is a union of the material world and of, and of God, a union of man and nature, just like we were talking about earlier with the Therianthropes. So we just go again from a really um, sort of uh, hand-to-mouth, intertwined way of understanding um, human beings and nature as, as one thing and as depicted in the Therianthrope images. Seeing those Therianthropes become integral to these classical religions in the world, you know, Greece and Rome and Babylon and all that. Um, and then, and then seeing the idea of God getting more and more abstracted until we, we arrive at not just God as being representative of these forces of nature, like the sun, death, the moon, fertility, but as, as the power behind the cosmos coming to be, and again, not just not just the, the the magician behind you know standing up on the cloud like I imagined in the Old Testament that the magician snaps his fingers and creates the world. Not not like that, but but by tearing apart its own its own being, by tearing apart its own you know symbolic body and using it to create the universe. That that the cosmos is not just created by God, but it is God. Okay, that this is what we're supposed to be taking from the story of Ymir and Pangu. Okay, um, where I want to go from here is to talk about how some of these um, some of these changes, how they continue to um, the 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 way that we um, conceptualize God continues to change, and how it continues to change religion, um, basically all the way up to the point that we have it today. And, you know, we can go back, like I said, to Hesiod. So that's 750 BC. You know, we have written record there in Greece um, where Hesiod not only describes, um, you know, the the God chaos uh, birthing, you know, the cosmos, but also um, with Hesiod and Herodotus who wrote a little later at 450 BC, we see these, we see these weird instances where the Greeks understood gods in other cultures as the same as their own. And there's all sorts of parallels where, again, in Herodotus, you know, he talks about going to Egypt 
and and talking to the priests of Ra. And he says that when they told him about the king of the gods, Ra, that they were talking about Zeus. And he understood when they were talking about Ra, he understood that they were talking about the God he understood as the king of the gods, Zeus from the Greeks. And it was no, between the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Greeks, it was no stretch. They talked about their gods and what they were like, and they understood, oh, what, who you call Ra, I call Zeus. Same thing with, uh, with uh, Demeter in the Greek religion, or Demeter, however you say it, that they saw this goddess of fertility that's um, depicted with like cow's horns on her head. And they're like, oh, your God who you show as Isis, we call Demeter. That's, that's, the, same, that's the same God, same goddess. Um, in the Sumerian religion, we talked about Tiamat. You know, I, I mentioned Jordan Peterson does a great job of talking about Tiamat, in, you know, in his biblical lectures from, from the ancient Babylonian uh, Sumerian religion. That Tiamat was the dragon of chaos. Tiamat was basically the same um, as the goddess chaos that we talked about earlier from the Greek religion. And also, as Jordan Peterson points out, uh, Tiamat is, t- is the same as Tehom in the Jewish uh, Old Testament. Um, so when, when God creates the heavens and the earth, in that, in that Genesis story, that Tehom is the abyss, that Tehom is the chaos, um, that's depicted as a supernatural power. Um, so the point that I'm trying to make here is that when human beings uh, developed these classical religions and they had all these gods that they had um, that they had outlined uh, from what I what I imagine being these earlier therianthrope type images and ideas that what they found is they were kind of coming up with the same gods you know in different cultures you know maybe they weren't related to the same animals or the same forces of nature maybe they didn't have the same names but they were close enough in their stories and what they represented that if a if an ancient Greek you know went to uh, Egypt and talk to a priest of Ra that they're talking apples and apples. They understand each other. They're not talking about different gods. And I find that to be very interesting. Um, Hesiod has a quote that I want to read to you that goes like this. He says in the very beginning of a, of a book called Works and Days, which is basically like the, like the book of Genesis for the ancient Greek religion, he's talking about how he's going to tell the story about, quote, how the gods and mortal men sprang from one source. And then he goes on to talk about the universe being created uh, in the beginning of time. Wow, how the gods and mortal men sprang from one source. So again, I can't help but think about consciousness in this context. We can go back and, and reference before about you know ancestor worship and seeing how human beings worship human beings. And here we see in, in ancient Greece, Hesiod saying, we understand that the, the gods that we, that we believe in and that ourselves, we actually came from the same place, the same source. That's that oneness. That's that, uh, or, uh, you know, that origin point that we talked about from the mystic experience, um, that even the gods, they came from someplace. And that place they came from is the same place human beings came from. That's something that I would call consciousness, that I think physics um, hesitates to call consciousness, but, but should. Um, just really interesting. 
So again, we have we have uh, all these gods from classical religions that we basically can that are synonymous with with one another that we could see in different cultures. That some of these very important gods we just kind of see with different names over and over again. And I'm reminded of what I told you before in an earlier solo episode um, about, in fact, it may have been the first one that I did um, about the Proto-Indo-European religion and how the name, how the name of their of their primordial creator god, Dius Potter, the Sky Father, how that be, Dius became Zeus and Dius Potter became Jupiter. You know that that these gods do a lot of them have a similar origin. And even the ones that don't, even the ones that don't have a similar origin, like these ancient Egyptian ones, let's say, that even they correspond to these other cultures' gods. And so it's, it's, it's very difficult to imagine uh, how people from different parts of the world, from different time periods, have, you know, formulate the similar or the same ideas about God. And I think that Carl Jung gave us, gave us the answer to this and his and his student uh, Eric Neumann gave us the answer to this by by saying um, that that human beings used to imagine the gods as being outside of ourselves and that as as we abstracted them more and more as our ideas changed about gods that we eventually started bringing them back into ourselves that we started to understand them as a part of ourselves um, and, and so in psychology, they, they, and Jordan Peterson uses this word, that they talk about gods as transpersonal forces. And what he means by that is that it's seemingly a force that acts upon everyone, that it's not caused by somebody. It's sort of something that exists uniformly in everybody. And a good way of understanding this is just uh, to imagine yourself getting overwhelmed by, uh, by lust or or by anger or something. And when that happens, how kind of, you know, your, your, your brain, your brain doesn't work the way that it, that it, that it usually does. You don't have the same checks and balances that you become taken over by these emotional forces. And, um, and so, you know, human beings will see that it doesn't matter what culture you're from. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what religion you have or what beliefs you have. When you become overwhelmed with anger, um, you know, when you, when you, when you get so angry that you, you know, make, make a mistake and you, you know, harm or kill somebody out of anger, let's say, um, it's easy to imagine five minutes later, once you've calmed down and the consequences of your actions start to set in and that guilt starts to set in where you realize, Sh- shit, man, I was possessed by a spirit of anger. I, I, w- I became the god of anger for a second. I was overwhelmed by this transpersonal force that exists in the world and just sort of strikes people, you know, when they're least expecting it, that we don't have any power over, the, over these forces, that they just sort of act upon us from the outside. Something like that. Um, and then eventually we, we began to understand those forces less as uh, outside of ourselves and more as um, motivational forces or psychological forces. Um, and we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about that in the future, certainly. Um, but what I want to get to here is the idea that all of these, all of this change from, um, in the way that we imagined uh, gods, uh, all this, this process of abstracting it from the very earliest days to, to the, to the modern, you know, maybe psychological paradigm, um, is that we're, we're, we're foreshadowing 
the religions that we have today that we're seeing in this these stories in the changing stories the writing on the wall and what i mean here is if it's possible for um, if it's possible for one tribe to do, to make war on another tribe and to come in and say, "Hey, this God that you that you guys have been worshiping for all of your you know all of your history, um, this God doesn't exist anymore. Uh, instead, it's it's our it's our God, and this is His name. And now we have people worshiping that God, and maybe they maybe they attribute you know uh, things that they used to attribute to their old gods on these new ones, or something like that. But the fact that you can the fact that it's possible to consolidate gods. You know, to say, oh, Zeus and Ra are the same. We're just going to consolidate those guys together. Um, the fact that we can do that is like the—it's like the very beginnings of the idea of 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 consolidating polytheism, of of consolidating these many gods into something like monotheism, where we only have one god. And that's you know that's that's what we have today. That's the, that's the religious paradigm that we have today. And um, Jordan Peterson talks about this. Um, if you go back to episode 10 of his podcast, there's a Maps of Meaning lecture, which is the title of, the title of his book, but he did three, le- uh, well, many lectures on them. And episode 10 of the podcast talks about um, uh, Merce Eliade, which is the, one of those um, anthropologist, religious scholars that, that I brought up earlier. He talks about something um, that happened in ancient Egypt called the democratization of deity. And as a fancy way of saying that uh, that the pharaoh, that the king of Egypt, that he used to be identical. He was identified with with the king of the gods. So he was considered to be like a god on earth. And that over time, that that started to become not just true of the pharaoh, but it started to become true of the priests. And so what happens is you have this domino effect where if the pharaoh can be considered a god on earth, and then the priests who are in the closest connection with the gods, if they can also be considered somehow gods, more you know, somehow less human than all the other peasants, um, eventually the people uh, took that same privilege for themselves. And you can see that happening with the birth of, of monotheism, uh, where the, the idea that uh, we no longer feel... Um, we no longer feel like like it's important to separate the idea of God into all these many names and gods. Instead, we can just think about this as as one God. Um, you know, uh, which is what the uh, you know the Judeo Christian tradition um, uh, became. But it, that, even that started in Egypt, as I mentioned before, under the Pharaoh Akhenaten, who who closed all the temples and said, "Hey, there isn't there isn't but one God." And we're going to get close all the temples. We're not going to worship any of them anymore. We're just going to we're just going to focus on this one God. Let's let's how about we do that? So the fact that there's these cultural shifts to consolidate gods and eventually to do away with the with the pantheons entirely, um, and and rest kind of come full circle to this idea of of there only being one God. Um, and it's interesting because because you know coming from a Judeo Christian background, when I understand there's there to be you know only one god and how how important that is by the way that idea of there only being one god in the jewish religion and, and then in the, in the muslim tradition as well um that uh, you know uh, that thou shalt not have any any gods before me you know that that sort of thing um that uh, that it's very important it becomes very important that there that god is is conceptualized as one now it's impossible for me to believe 
that that has anything to do with anything other than the mystic experience. You know, when you have a mystic experience, the thing you understand is the oneness of everything. So you, you, you end up understanding that you are one with the universe. And if you've had that experience, I can imagine thinking about gods as many would become harder and harder to, to believe. Uh, when you, when you have an experience of being one with the universe, you kind of, your God kind of has to follow that pattern. You know, you your God also has to be one. And so this is where we end up in this idea of, of monotheism. And this is where, this is the predicament we're in as, as a, as a, kind of global society now is that we've got this um, we've got this uh, foundation of polytheism or monotheism rather we have this foundation of God being one that we've been kind of existing um, under for a very long time and and I feel like there's there's one step that's missing there's one final step that's missing here and that is to, to take this consolidated idea of God as being this one thing and then merge that idea with, with consciousness, with, with ourselves. So if we can go back to the kind of mindset we had in the cave paintings when we believed ourselves to be one with nature and where we, where we wanted to always keep that in our minds and our, our religious rituals, we wanted to always remember that we're one with nature that if we can if we can take this one step further and say okay we're one with nature and god is one if we can just take that final step to merge the oneness of god with the oneness of nature with the oneness of of reality then we have the truth that's reflected in the mystic experience then we finally have something that that is is closely mirroring the, what, what you actually feel in the spiritual, in that spiritual mystical type of experience, that those transpersonal forces, that they are like what Carl Jung said and what, and what Jordan Peterson said, those transpersonal forces are one and they're not, and they're not exactly coming from outside of you. They're sort of, uh, coming from within you. That, that the idea of God as being one thing, and then we can call, call this consciousness now, we can kind of get back to my preferred lingo, that the oneness of God and the oneness of, of, of uh, you know, um, the material reality, that that really is, that is the grand unified theory that's missing in physics. It's, it's unifying those things in our, in our heads. And, and this is something that's being talked about right now. This is something that's actually being kicked around um, in the realm of, of physics. And, and I mentioned before about um, um, different, uh, well, uh, it's, called, it's called panpsychism. And there's a guy named Philip Goff who, who I mentioned who's, who's talking about this, who's a physicist who's saying, listen, um, as long as science continues to ignore consciousness and doesn't factor that into you know, our, our calculations, let's say, that we're missing something important and maybe something vitally important. We're, we're maybe missing the whole picture. Uh, and, that, and that this idea of panpsychism is, is, unifying, um, is unifying the uh, laws of nature um, with, with consciousness, with the force, the, the force that creates the cosmos with consciousness. And I think that's very much in line with the 
uh, with the pantheism that we talked about in our Spinoza episode and the, uh, you know, and, and this idea of monotheism, even, um, it getting back to a, uh, to a, a unified, um, idea, uh, kind of, of, of the oneness of God, that we can see that reflected throughout the history of, of, of religion, that if we can get back to that, that maybe, that maybe we'll start to solve the problems that have been plaguing us for, for our entire, our entire existence. Maybe, maybe then when we realize that we're all one, um, that we'll have some reason to stop warring with each other all the time. Um, maybe, Maybe when we realize that everything is one, uh, the physicists will finally be able to solve the quantum riddles. You know, maybe. Um, in any case, I think this is just an interesting way of kind of going through that story. Uh, and I really did think it was interesting, the evolution of these images from religious art. And I, I couldn't help but bring this to you guys because we did this with um, a prior solo episode on some of those images that I saw in the mystic experience and, and in my own imagination and trying to make sense of them. And seeing people like Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung and uh, Merce Eliade trying to do this with with mythology, with the images that we see in, in mythology, like what human beings have created to tell a story about their culture going back to the beginning of time, that we see these same sorts of things. Um, and I just wonder uh, if we can all get on the same page about this, that what uh, what what kind of bright future might might be in store for us then? So I don't know, um, but I'll keep bringing these to you guys. Um, something to think about. So chew on that for a little while. Um, but besides that, I love you. I'll see you next time. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. 